Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.55 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is the 19th day of September 2023. This is episode 796 of Bitcoin. And, well, you know, uh, I was going to open up the Circle P today, but the only real person that I could actually talk about would be Good Beans Coffee. Uh, It's a little too late in the year for most of the people in the United States to be planting comfrey. You could do it. And you could contact Shishi uh, over on Noster and get some comfrey, but it is getting it's getting late. All right, so I'm kind of not wanting to do that. Um, yeah, it, it, like Dubrovko's probably does. You know, it's probably not the good time to start a worm bin unless you're doing it inside. So if you've got, if you have something that you want to sell, a service that you have, get in touch with me. I'll throw you into the circle P and we'll do it that way. Uh, that would, maybe we have some uh, people that sell things that are more winter based. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Anyway, um, we're going to start out today because, well, we're going to start out with FTX simply because this is just so not over. And now, now somebody else has been brought into the mix and you're never going to guess who it is. His parents. It's Sam Bateman Fried's parents. Coin Telegraph gonna tell us all about it. FTX founders' parents have been sued. That's right, sued and accused of stealing millions of dollars from the crypto exchange. That's right. Debtors of the bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX have launched legal actions against the parents of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried, alleging that they themselves misappropriated millions of dollars through their involvement in the exchange's business. The Council for FTX Debtors and Debtors in Possession, represented by the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, filed a lawsuit against SBF's parents, Joseph Bankman and Barbara Fried, on September the 18th. So that was yesterday. This is brand new. It's just breaking, man. It's breaking. The plaintiffs argued that Bankman and Fried exploited their access and influence within the FTX empire to enrich themselves at the expense of the debtors in the FTX bankruptcy estate. The debtors allege that SBF's parents, his Parents, his mommy and daddy were very much involved in the FTX business from inception to collapse, contrary to what SBF has claimed. Quote, as early as 2018, Bankman, 
described Alameda as a family business, a phrase he repeatedly used to refer to the FTX group. Even as the FTX group descended into insolvency, Bankman and Fried profited hamsley from his quote-unquote family business, the complaint reads. According to the plaintiffs, SBS father, a Stanford Law School professor, had broad authority to make decisions for FTX Group as its de facto officer. Bankman also held executive positions on FTX Group's management team, the debtors argued. SBF's mommy, also a Stanford Law School professor, was actively involved in FTX political donations, the plaintiffs wrote. According to the allegation, Fried served as the single most influential advisors or advisor in FTX Group's political contributions, repeatedly calling upon FTX to donate millions of dollars directly to Mind the Gap or MTG, a political action committee that she co-founded. Uh, her own political action committee. She did it. She made the committee. She built that political action group. And then she leveraged the money out of FTX to send to her own group. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot tell you how inappropriate that is. That is beyond the pale when it comes to appropriate actions by people who do things like start political action groups. Now, that doesn't mean it's not common, because it is, but it's inappropriate and unethical. This entire family is like, I don't know, like anybody else in in the higher echelons of uh, what I guess we'll call humanity, but I don't really include them as humans, but for lack of a better term, maybe lizard people. The lizard people hate humanity. They just don't like us. And they just don't care anymore. Nobody's coming after them. I mean, well, I guess maybe they maybe they will get sued. But why not prison time? What what happened to good old fashioned prison? When you can afford to get sued, then it doesn't really matter if you get sued, especially if you're going to come out with a shit ton of money at the other end of it. And these people probably will. So the only thing left is actual real dyed in the wool prison time. But no. Probably not going to happen. I'm very surprised that Sam Bankman-Fried is actually facing real jail time. But we've got a few more sentences to get through. According to the complaint, Bankman and Fried extracted significant unearned rewards from their involvement in FTX Group, including a $10 million cash gift and a $16.4 million luxury property in the Bahamas. Bankman also siphoned off FTX Group's money to cover costs, including privately chartered jets and $1,200 per night hotel stays. The drain, by draining FTX Group's funds to their benefit, Bankman and Fried either knew or ignored red flags revealing that their son was orchestrating a fraudulent scheme to promote their personal and charitable interest at the debtor's cost, the plaintiffs said. The debtors called on the court to hold Bankman and Fried accountable for their misconduct and recover assets for the debtors' creditors, stating, quote, Award plaintiffs punitive damages in an amount to be determined at trial resulting from defendants' conscious, willful, wanton, and malicious conduct. 
which exhibits a reckless disregard for the interest of plaintiffs and their creditors, end quote. Bankman and Fried's counsel, Sean Heckler and Michael Tremonte, subsequently described the lawsuit as an attempt to undermine the jury process just days before their child's trial begins. In a joint statement to Cointelegraph, they wrote, quote, These claims are completely false. Mr. Ray and his massive team of lawyers, who are collectively running up countless millions of dollars in fees while returning relatively little to FTX clients, knows better, end quote. As previously reported, Bankman Fried or Bankman and Fried began facing professional issues at Stanford Law School soon after FTX collapsed. In late 2022, SBF's parents also reportedly told friends that their son's legal bills would likely wipe them out financially. Once a major cryptocurrency exchange, FTX stopped operating and filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in mid-November of last year. FTX founder and former CEO SBF was subsequently arrested and charged with 13 counts, including fraud, money laundering, bribing officials. SBF's first two trials are scheduled to start on October the 3rd, where he will face seven charges related to fraudulent activities involving user funds at FTX and Alameda Research. Is it no wonder that his parents fought so desperately hard? to have their son placed under house arrest. And it makes me wonder all the times that we were sitting here going, why is Sam Bankman fried actively trying to destroy his terms of house arrest slash bail? All he had to do was cool his heels at his parents' house and he wouldn't have to go to Rikers Island or wherever the hell it is that that he's cooling his heels now because from what I understand it is not a pleasant it's not a pleasant place to be. It's just not, right? Could it be that there is way more activity by Sam Bankman Fried's parents in FTX than their son? Is it possible that FTX was was I know I'm going to be, I'm going to go so tinfoil hat here. Screw it. Is it possible that FTX was actually set up by his parents and they put their son as the head of that thing for so that they, he could take the fall. They, and then when he did, because they knew this shit was going to collapse, they made sure that he was at home. So he wouldn't be able to talk to anybody, but his lawyers. And then maybe just possibly that SBF was like, dude, my parents hosed me. I've got to do something to be able to get out of their control so that I can actually talk to other people and tell them that I'm not guilty, that it was all their fault. This is going to be one of the, a movie will be made about this entire debacle that is FTX and these court cases that are going to start. It's going to be a fascinating time. I guarantee you it's going to be a fascinating time. If it turns out the way that I think it's going to turn out, the parents are going to point their fingers at Sam and Sam's going to point his fingers at his parents. And it's going to be a clown show, the likes of which we probably haven't seen in decades. It's going to be fun. (laughs) Buckle up because it's going to be fun. Now, I got Shinobi over here from Bitcoin Magazine writing an article that may infuriate some of us, all right? 
there's a very good reason why, because everybody's sort of, you know, we're all hating on drive chains right now because drive chains, in my opinion, aren't really necessary. Well, just when you thought that we might be able to escape that crap, here comes spider chains. That's right, spider chains, a proof of stake, second layer for Bitcoin. Yeah, if you're already just wanting to throw shit, I don't blame you, but let's let's get let's get to it. This is an extension of my previous article series discussing the different sidechain proposals that exist. Those articles can be found here. Space chains, space chain use chains, soft chains, drive chains, federated chains, and trade-offs of sidechains. Botonics Labs has proposed a completely new sidechain design recently called Spider Chains for the purpose of porting the Ethereum virtual machine to a platform anchored to the Bitcoin network. You thought ordinals and inscriptions were bad? Boys and girls, Dominoon Heron? Yeah, well, it sounds like it's going to get even worse. The architecture is a pretty large deviation from most prior proposals for concrete designs. Firstly, it does not involve miners directly in consensus or use merge mining in any of its variant forms. Secondly, it uses multi-sig and escrow bonds to create a second layer proof of stake system on top of Bitcoin. Third, it does not require any changes to Bitcoin in order to deploy. The first thing to clarify is that technically speaking, the spider chain isn't really the side chain. Any sidechain deploying utilizing spider chains would sit above the spider chain, which sits above the base layer on the main chain. He's talking about Bitcoin. Sidechain blocks would be produced independently by the stakers, referred to as orchestrators in the paper. In the consensus system, the spider chain, rather than being the actual sidechain, is sort of a collateral layer facilitating the custody of users' funds and stakers' bonds on the main chain. Think of it like the middle of a sandwich between the sidechain and the main chain. The proof-of-stake variant. To get a better idea of how this system works, let's go through how the Botanics EVM chain interacts with the spider chain layer. One of the first uses the system makes of the Bitcoin blockchain, aside from actually custodying funds backing the sidechain tokens, is the selection of the block constructor. Proof-of-stake chains require a selection process from which a staker actually puts blocks together from the transactions in the mempool. In proof-of-work, all miners do this independently, and whoever gets lucky and finds a valid block header hash has their block accepted into the blockchain. Since the entire point of proof-of-stake is to do away with energy-intensive randomizing of who selects the next block, these systems need another solution. They use a verifiable random function, also known as VRF, a function that allows all participants to verify the outcome is actually random and not biased or deterministic. Spider chains make use of Bitcoin block hashes in order to acquire verifiable randomness. Just like other proof-of-stake systems, Botanics divides the blockchain into discrete sections called epochs, which are finalized periodically and a new block constructor is chosen. At the start of an epoch, the main chain block hash is taken and applied as a source of randomness to all the stakers to choose the new block constructor. 
After six blocks, to account for the possibility of reorganizations, the network transitions to the new block constructor for that epoch. Now, this describes the way the proof-of-stake system handles block construction on the sidechain and reaching consensus on whose turn it is, time to get how, to how all this interacts with the spider chain and what exactly a spider chain is. So, here it is, the spider chain. In addition to using it periodically for selecting a block constructor, the sidechain also uses the VRF to select a random subset of the stakers to construct a multi-sig address for deposits into the sidechain every single Bitcoin block. That's right. A random set of members for the peg or for the pegs multi-sig. Unlike a federated sidechain which custodies funds and addresses composed of the entire set of the federation membership, sidechains break each deposit or change from transactions pegging out of the sidechain off into a unique address depending on the main chain block it confirms and made up a random subset of the set of stakers. For example, if there are 50 people staking at any given block height, 10 are randomly selected to be key holders for any deposits occurring in the next block. This may intuitively seem rather crazy, but there are a few sound logical reasons for it. First, it segregates risk of funds from malicious parties. Most people think of theft, but even loss of liveliness can be a disaster for a system like this. Think of a federated sidechain. You don't need a malicious majority to cause a massive problem, just a malicious minority. If a federation requires a two-thirds threshold to move any coins, then just one-third plus one member is enough to keep those coins frozen. This is why Liquid has a time-delayed emergency recovery path with Blockstream-held keys to prevent permanent coin loss in this situation. You don't even need any malicious actors, strictly speaking. Just key loss could create that problem. By breaking up deposits into isolated subset keys with random members, you mitigate but not solve problems like this. If keys were lost or a malicious actor was able to gain enough staking percentage in the system to stall or steal, they statistically will never have access to the entirety of the funds in the spider chain. Each block has totally independent odds of constructing a deposit address controlled by a malicious majority or impeded by a malicious minority, and if those conditions are met, only the funds deposited or rolled over through change from withdrawals in that specific block will be at risk instead of the entirety of the sidechain's funds. There's also another interesting security property that derives from how withdrawals are handled. Any sidechain peg mechanism that doesn't aggregate all deposits into a single rolling UTXO begs the question of which UTXOs to use for fulfilling withdrawals. The spider chain design has settled on last in, first out, meaning that any withdrawals from the sidechain will be processed using the most recently deposited UTXOs. Think of this in the context of malicious entities joining the set of stakers in order to steal funds from the spider chain. All the money that was deposited before those malicious entities became a majority is completely safe and firewalled from them until any withdrawal requirements start necessitating spending those funds or rotating the change into a new address. Now, even after they are the majority of stakers, 
they will only have access to funds where they randomly wind up as the majority of the key members in the deposit address creation protocol. So, even after they have entered and taken over, so to say, they will not have full access to all funds deposited after that fact because of the deposit address creation using a VRF. This chain of randomly constructed multisigs is the spider chain. The pegging mechanism used to lock and unlock coins into and out of the side chain. The staking bonds. The last piece of any proof of stake system is bonds. And it's pretty simple. If stakers aren't required to put anything up for collateral in exchange for participation in the consensus mechanism, then there is nothing that can be taken from them as a penalty for malicious behavior. This is accomplished by, you guessed it, using the spider chain. The same way deposit addresses are generated for users, each block a new deposit address is generated for people who want to stake on the sidechain to deposit a bond into a multisig composed of a random set of existing stakers. Once this bond is confirmed, the new member is recognized as a staker and included in the overall set that new block constructors and deposit address members are selected from. At that point, If a staker fails to respond and stay online or engages in malicious behavior, they can be penalized through slashing and, if necessary, ultimately removed from the set of stakers by slashing the entire staking bond. The nice thing about the way this is done is the slashing policy. For example, the amount in penalties for specific actions or misbehaviors is not programmatic or social. It's both. Slashing occurs programmatically on the base layer of the main chain, but is initiated socially by the key holders of the staking bond. This means there is potential for things to be a little messy, but flexibility to fine-tune things to an equilibrium that keeps things functioning in a way beneficial to stakers and users. Take the idea of proof-of-stake as a base layer consensus mechanism and throw the idea away for right now. That's not what this is, and the problems that need to be solved to enable proof-of-stake as a second-layer system instead of a standalone base layer are not the same. Proof-of-stake is essentially a federation, but where anyone can join and can't be stopped from doing so and with a mechanism to punish members for acting in a malicious manner. As a base layer that creates all kinds of existential issues like the objectivity of a slashing penalty, proof of stake as a second layer does not have that problem when the bonds for slashing are on the main chain governed by proof of work. The problem with proof of stake on a second layer is how do you guarantee that new members cannot be kept out of the federation? If all the funds are custodied by the current members, a majority or a malicious minority of one-third plus one could prevent any funds from being transferred to a multi-sig with new members included. They could be stopped from joining. The way that deposits and staking bonds make use of the spider chain and its provably randomly generated multi-sigs composed of subgroups of the Federation, it elegantly solves the problem of current members being able to exclude new members. Everything governing the address members and new entrants is provably verifiable and enforced by second-layer consensus with information viewable on the main chain governed by proof-of-work. Once someone deposits a bond, 
They're a part of the set that gets selected to custody deposits and other staking bonds. It's all there and it's verifiable. It also creates some interesting security properties and dynamics based on how it works. In a federated sidechain, the instant funds were rotated into multisigs composed of enough malicious entities, the entirety of the sidechain funds are compromised. Now, with the spider chain, the entrance of a new malicious majority can be almost completely mitigated if it is recognized quickly. Just ceasing new deposits until slashing can trim out enough malicious partners can keep the amount of funds at risk limited to the statistical portion of new deposits that wound up in addresses they control since they became the majority. They would be able to slash any old staking bonds from before their entrance, but pre-existing members would be able to statistically slash a portion of their bonds. As long as the size of individual multisigs are balanced right with the total number of stakers and the value of all deposits compared with staking bonds, this could be a very, very workable system. Overall, it is very in, an interesting proposal that proposes interesting solutions to the problems of quote-unquote upgrading federations to a proof-of-stake system. The ability for anyone to join mechanisms for protecting against malicious members, and an incentive to participate because the stakers can split transaction fees. The kicker, and why should you care? And this is the, this is the whole key. This is the last sentence of the article. And this is the whole freaking key. It doesn't require any fork at all to enable, so it's going to happen. Okay, that's Shinobi's article talking about this new thing that's on the horizon called spider chains. And as confusing as it is, and I understand that, one of the reasons why I read whole articles is so that you can make decisions for yourself. If you didn't understand it, I, I, I totally agree. No, well, don't agree. But I totally understand if you didn't understand it. I'm still trying to pull it apart myself. But... The fact of the matter is that, like ordinals and inscriptions, if Bitcoin can enable a thing to happen, that thing will happen. One of the ways that we've been able to avoid Bitcoin enabling things to happen is by not allowing certain hard forks, like, uh, you know, uh, oh God, the uh, Segwit2x, a block size debate or which actually was a war it we didn't allow the the block size increase we did want Sig, segwit and we got it but we weren't we just weren't playing around we weren't going to do a block size increase god only knows what that would have enabled but I, we do know that it would have definitely put the hurt on me as a node operator i would have had to have upgraded all of my shit you know, I mean, I would have needed a bigger, you know, like a larger computer. I would need more. I would have needed a lot more memory. It would have really caused me to actually have to go do stuff and reach for things and, you know, figure figure stuff out. Ordinal's inscriptions, I have to deal with it. And it causes certain problems because we enable Taproot <coughs> and SegWit. And because of those two things, somebody figured out, well, we can do ordinals and inscriptions. This one, 
doesn't seem to require anything at all other than the proof of work system that is the main chain that Bitcoin is. Now, here's the thing. I always knew that this was going to happen. Did I know spider chains was going to happen? Oh, hell no. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm not saying that that I knew that specific things would happen. What my gen, One of my running theses for Bitcoin is this. If Bitcoin enables a thing to be done, then that thing will be done. Unless what you want done isn't going to make you money. All right, so that, that's the, the end caveat for that. Do not, under any circumstances whatsoever, expect this to be the final battle when we're talking about, God, I wish they wouldn't do that. It's going to be done, ladies and gentlemen. And if this interferes with, you know, mempool or mempools around the world and too many transactions, then we're going to have to live with it. Because if Bitcoin can enable a thing, then that thing will be done. That's going, that, that is my major rule for Bitcoin at this point. Does Bitcoin allow it? Well, then it's going to happen. And Bitcoin apparently allows this gnarly thing called spider chains to occur. Now, the second thing about this entire thing is, and this is the only good, you know, possibly good thing about spider chains, is it yet again, yet one more time, proves to the world that everything that you need to have done, whether it's covenants, whether it's smart contracts, whether it's proof of stake, can all be done on Bitcoin. We don't need Ethereum. We don't need shitcoins. We don't need Dogecoin. We don't need Solana. We don't need Terra Luna, which we don't have anymore, thank God. Well, I mean, the, the zombie coin is still there, but honestly, it's it's the, that project is pretty much totally dead, at least for now. We don't need any of it. Everything can be hooked to the Bitcoin main chain. Does that mean that that's a good thing? I don't know. I don't know if it's good for for the main chain of Bitcoin, but is it good for the idea of Bitcoin? And I'd have to actually say yes, because it proves yet one more freaking time that we don't need any of this other crap. All this can be handled in layers. That's the way the internet did it. And that's the way we're going to do this stuff going forward. So be on the lookout for spider chains and, you know, figure it out from there. Prashant Jha from Cointelegraph writing this one, Bitcoin Adoption Fund has been launched by Japanese Nomura Bank. It's $500 billion of banking right there. So let's get into this one. Japan's largest investment bank, Nomura's digital asset subsidiary, Laser Digital Asset Management, has launched a Bitcoin adoption fund for institutional investors. The official announcement noted that the Bitcoin-based fund, remember it's the a Bitcoin-based fund, not a shitcoin-based fund, a Bitcoin-based fund will be the first in a range of digital adoption investment solutions that the firm plans to introduce. Nomura is a Japanese financial giant with over $500 billion in assets under management and offers brokerage services to leading institutional investors. The Bitcoin fund launched by its digital asset arm will now offer investors direct exposure to Bitcoin. The Laser Digital Bitcoin Adoption Fund offers long-only exposure to Bitcoin. 
The financial giant has chosen Komainu for its regulated custody partner. The Bitcoin fund is a portion of Laser Digital Fund's segregated portfolio company that has been registered as a mutual fund in accordance with the Cayman Island Regulatory Authority. Laser Digital Asset Management head Sebastian Guglietta said that Bitcoin is one of the enablers of this long-lasting transformational change, and long-term exposure to Bitcoin offers a solution for investors to capture this macro trend. The Bitcoin Adoption Fund might be the first of its kind launched by Nomura in its digital asset arm, but the Japanese investment banking giant has been investing in the digital asset ecosystem for quite some time already. In September of 2022, the firm launched its digital asset venture capital arm to stay at the forefront of digital innovation. Earlier in August this year, Nomura's capital arm Laser Digital also won Dubai's Virtual Asset Regulatory Authority license to operate in the country. The long-only Bitcoin adoption fund for investors in Japan comes amid a growing discussion around Bitcoin-based investment products from regulated and mainstream financial giants. The United States Securities and Exchange Commission approved two Bitcoin-based futures exchange-traded funds, even though there is a delayed decision on spot Bitcoin ETFs. Apart from the U.S., Canada and Europe have also approved several Bitcoin-focused investment products over the past couple of years. So Japan, dude, Japan... <laughs> getting into it with their $500 billion investment bank. And it's Bitcoin only, and it's only long. So think of think of it this way. Long contract, long future contracts, you're betting on the price of Bitcoin going up. Short futures contracts, you're betting on the price of Bitcoin going down. There is no short instrument in this Bitcoin only fund. So not only is it not dabbling in any kind of altcoin or shitcoin, it's also not dabbling in shorts. Let that sink in. A half a trillion dollars in asset under management by this bank, and they're not going into shitcoins, and they're not going short. I'm just saying that may be something we want to keep in mind. And there is a setback for the Securities and Exchange Commission as a judge denies immediate access to Binance U.S. software, this happened today, Decrypt and Matt Hussey is telling us about it. The Securities and Exchange Commission is licking further wounds after a judge denied its request to access the software powering Binance U.S., the American arm of the exchange. In a court hearing on Monday, the regulator has asked a federal magistrate judge to allow inspection of Binance U.S.'s technical infrastructure and to force the company to share other requested information as part of its ongoing case against the exchange. But, 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 federal magistrate Judge Zia Farikwi said he wasn't inclined to allow the inspection at this time, according to Bloomberg. Instead, the judge said the SEC should come up with more tailored requests and speak with additional witnesses. The story is the latest chapter in a legal case that started in June this year when the watchdog sued Binance US, Binance Holdings, and Binance CEO Shang Peng Zhao for running an unlicensed exchange. Special attention is being paid to CEFU, C-E-F-F-U, a custody platform rebranded earlier this year from Binance Custody. 
The SEC believes it has been acting as a conduit between Binance US and Binance Holdings and has been used to shift US customer funds out of the country. And there's where the SEC's problem is. The request for an inspection of Binance's software was to understand what rule Cefu had been playing in facilitating the alleged illegal transfers. While Judge Faruqi has denied the request, the SEC is unlikely to be deterred. The SEC has claimed during the hearing on Monday that Binance had supplied only three witnesses and fewer than 250 documents to the case so far. The regulator has also alleged Binance U.S. has blocked requests to depose top executives. Quote, the accelerating mass exodus of BAM, I I guess Binance Asset Management employees, now including its CEO and others who may possess crucial information regarding the custody, control, and availability of asset, further underscores the urgent need for expedited discovery into these issues now. Lawyers representing Binance U.S. have claimed that SEC's requests are little more than a fishing expedition. Matthew Martins, a lawyer at Wilmer Hale, who is representing Binance U.S., said at the hearing that Binance has responded to every targeted request by the SEC. Quote, what we are not going to respond to is the foolishness of document requests that came from the government here, end quote. The American company at first agreed, but then refused and said the regulator was making unreasonable demands asking for such documents. Earlier this month, the SEC accused Binance of a lack of transparency. Yeah, we know. We get it. So the, the, this massive exodus of Binance executives, the head honchos, the top, the cream of the crop, has been bailing Binance in droves. I mean, in, in, in succession. It's one after another, after another, after another. And I think the SEC is actually making a very good argument here. I don't like the SEC. I get it, but I, it's a logical request at this point. to if, you're, if your court case is going nowhere, because you're not getting the documents that you requested. And then they, they say they're going to give you the documents, and then they don't give you the documents. And then all of a sudden, the, the head honchos start quitting and leaving the company. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to start being a little nervous about where your case is going. Because it looks to me like Binance is hiding something. I don't think these people are quitting because they're like looking for better jobs. They're quitting, and I don't also think that they're quitting because they think that they're going to go to jail, although I'll bet you that that's part of it. No, no. I'll bet they're bailing so that they make it damn near impossible, if not 100% impossible, for the SEC to gather enough credible information to be able to make a full case against Binance in court in the United States and will lose that court case, and Binance will be able to go on it's merry way, and guess what'll happen? All those executives that left will magically be hired with a hiring bonus. That's their payoff for leaving the company today. Just saying. Hey, boys and girls, let's run the numbers. Oh, oil having a down day for the first time in a while, but not 
terribly bad, 0.14% of the downside for West Texas Intermediate. Brent North Sea is likewise down, but just even scanter, 0.02% to 94.41. <clears throat> Natural gas, however, doing what it always does, being weird in the face of everything else, four and a half points to the upside to $2.85 per thousand, and gasoline is down one and a half points to $2.65. Shiny metal rocks having a bad day, 0.1% down for gold. Silver is down 0.18%, but platinum is up almost a full point, while copper is down three quarters of a point. Palladium up two. Ag is fully mixed. I got half in the green, half in the red. Biggest loser today is going to be wheat, 1.27% to the downside. Biggest winner is sugar, 1.03% to the upside. And live cattle is down 0.16%, while lean hogs are up two and a third. Feeder cattle are down 0.15. The Dow is down over a half point. S&P is down 0.37%. NASDAQ is down a third. S&P mini is down a quarter. Real money kind of got a little bit of a bump today, $27,173.54. We got 0.4 BTC uh, as an average transaction value and 8.9 United States pennies as the median transaction value. Block times are a little high. We had a difficulty adjustment, 10 minutes and 8 seconds, 0.33 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and wow. 47.1 taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours with a 5.8% dip in hash rate. We are now down to 408 exahashes per second. Doge also seeing a little bit of a bump and it is your shitcoin indicator. So everything follows Bitcoin, 6.3 United States pennies for Elon's favorite crappy coin. We got a $530 billion market cap. That is 4.09% of gold's market cap. You can, if you so choose, purchase 14.1 ounces of shiny metal rocks with your one Bitcoin, of which there are 19,490,186.8 of, and 4,819.59 of those are in the Lightning Network valued at $130.8 million. 16,221 nodes that we know about and 68.864, no, 68,864 payment channels that we can see. And my heavens, ladies and gentlemen, 78.4% of all of this is running over Tor. I don't know if I've ever seen it that high before. That's almost 80%. Huh. We'll have to see how that one goes. And uh, where we got here for mempool.space. It looks to me like in the mempools, there seems to be, God, almost 230 blocks. We're carrying 492,000 unconfirmed transactions that are waiting to clear. High priority transactions, you're going to pay 35 Satoshis per V-byte. Low priority, you're going to pay 30. Anything under 9.38 Satoshis per V-byte, well, you're going to pay, well, well, hold on. I got, I'm being distracted. Yet again, anything under 9.38 Satoshis per V-byte are going to be purged from mempools around the world. Now, I'm number six in the fountain charts, thanks to Fatoshi with 21,021 Satoshis. He, He says, haven't played GTA in 20 years. Don't know whether to laugh or cry. Fatoshi, Gran Turismo 7 is a completely different animal. 
than any of the other ones that, that I've ever seen or played. I'm just, I'm just saying it's totally worth it. Dubrovko with 1,100 stats says, geez, they're up to Gran Turismo 7. I played 1, 2, and 3. Ow, my back. Also, sitting and waiting for a burger and what commercial shows up on the Money Talking Head channel but Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Yeah, I'll bet. God's Death with 537 says, thank you, sir. Hope you enjoyed your celebrations. Congrats, I did, and thank you. Axelrod 451 says, Thanks for bringing the Silvergate Banking dumpster fire back up. Choke point 2.0, clearing the playing field to make way for the TradFi Masters of the Universe. Oh, for F's sake. Uh, Tuesday. It's trash day. Yay. Hold on. And pies with a hundred Satoshis with thank you, sir. No, thank you. And that's going to do it for the morning nope nope for the weather report i almost i almost screwed that up for the weather report welcome to part two of the news that you can use we're going to start this one off with how'd you like to pay for twitter yeah you're paying for that blue check uh, you're probably, even if you ain't got a blue check, even if you're just like, you know what? I'm just not going to give Elon any money whatsoever. It looks like that could change. So if you haven't tried Noster, I would highly recommend claiming your namespace as soon as you possibly can. Maybe even after I finish this article paying for X, Elon Musk considers charging all users a monthly fee to combat armies of bots. This is from USA Today, written by Emily DeLetter. Mm-hmm. Emily DeLetter. Elon Musk is debating bringing another big change to X, formerly Twitter, charging all users a monthly fee. In an interview on Monday with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Musk, the owner of X, said he was considering charging a small monthly payment to all users in what he said was an effort to combat vast armies of bots proliferating on the website. Musk said X will come out with a lower tier pricing than the existing cost for current X premium subscribers. He did not specify what the pricing could be. Quote, we want it to be a small amount of money, Musk said. This is a longer discussion, but in my view, this is actually the only defense against the vast armies of bots. X already charges users who are verified an $8 monthly fee, which includes the verified check and access to special features like the ability to edit posts. For organizations, a verified subscription on X is $1,000 a month with an extra $50 a month for each additional affiliate. Musk initially agreed to the acquisition of X, then known as Twitter, in April of 2022 before attempting to back out, causing the company to use him for completion of the purchase. Sue him. She meant to write the word sue him, not use. The two eventually settled out of court and Musk completed the purchase in October of that year. In total, he paid $44 billion for the social network. Since his takeover, Musk has brought about a great number of changes to the platform, uh, most notably changing its name to, you know, X. Other changes include charging users a monthly fee for the verified badge, adding a view count to post, and a 2400 per day 
post limit. Wow. 400 per day follow limit and a 500 per day direct message limit. In addition to the blue check, paid verified users can also edit posts, upload 1080p videos, and create longer posts than the standard 240 character limit. Musk has also hinted of turning X into an everything app. Yeah, well, before he turns it into an everything app, he's going to shake you down for monthly fee. Four bucks a month is what I'm thinking he's going to do. He's going to do it as half. And for him, that's a small amount of money. You know, it's like, what, uh, $48 a year? So he'll charge 50 bucks a year. That's what it'll be. He'll, he'll charge 50 bucks a year just so that you can be on Twitter. And if you think he stops there, you're fooling yourself. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And for all the people that are, you know, calling Noster, you know, dumb or stupid or saying that it'll never work. Does this work? Does, I mean, I get it. You maybe, you know, like as a, as a service, you know, I, I get charging for it. But after a while, when you're making tons of money on advertising and Musk is, but I haven't seen his bottom line on advertising and whether or not he's actually got this, this company making money yet is you really don't need to charge your users. And for all the people that are going to just, there's going to be a lot of people that say, I don't want to pay four bucks. I'm, I'm being nickeled and dimed to death. Well, if you feel that way, you should probably go over to Noster. There are relays that you can pay for if you so choose. There are relays that you don't have to pay for. It's like, you know, it's, I would use this as an excuse to at least try it. There's no reason not to. It doesn't cost you any money. It's going to cost you a little bit of time. That's it. And if you don't like it, then go back to Twitter. I I don't, it's not that I don't care. It's just that I think now is the perfect time for somebody to start trying out and understanding what Noster is. I would rather, I don't like using anything else after Noster. Like, and it's not just Noster. It's this entire ecosystem that's being developed around it where I can just sign in to all these different things that some of them almost have nothing at all to do with Noster, like Stacker News. Yet I can sign in with my Noster pub key. I, or my, well, my Noster private key, which I keep on GitAlby. GitAlby itself has nothing to do with Noster, except that I can use it to handle my Noster private keys. There's a whole world of things out there that do all kinds of neat stuff. Some of them don't use the Noster protocol, but do use the ability for you to use your Noster private keys as sign-in. And it makes it like two clicks and you're into something. It's just try it. That's all I'm asking. You don't give up your phone number. You don't give up an email. You don't give up anything. You give up as much personal information as you choose. And if you choose to give up none, that's fine. All you need to do is generate a private key and and, and your public key will come along with it. And you do that using one of the clients. On desktop, I use Primal and Coracle. On iOS, I use Domus. All of them will generate you a private public key pair, and it doesn't cost you any money. Just please 
please, because this this X situation or Twitter situation is just going to get worse. Perfect time to try out something new. And now we're going to go back to something old. Do y'all remember a guy named Cobra? Also known Cobra Bitcoin? Yeah, he's back in the news. I haven't even heard, because I've been off of Twitter for so long, I haven't even heard the name Cobra until today. Cobra cannot fight the $700,000 Craig Wright legal fees as anonymous UK judge rules. Again, this is out of Coindesk. Sandali Handagama is writing it. A London High Court judge on Monday upheld a previous ruling that Bitcoin.org website operators, including the pseudonymous Cobra, must give up their identity to avoid hefty legal fees levied by self-proclaimed Bitcoin inventor Craig Wright. Wright served legal papers on Cobra in April of 2021 over the copyright of Bitcoin's white paper, the Popular Cryptocurrencies Manifesto. The Austrian, or sorry, Australian computer science scientist who has long claimed to be its pseudonymous author, Satoshi Nakamoto, accused operators of the Bitcoin.org payment network's website of infringing his rights by publishing the white paper. Wright claimed that, as Satoshi, he owned the copyright to the Bitcoin manifesto. After Cobra was a no-show in court, a judge ordered the white paper to be taken down from the website. Then, when Cobra attempted to challenge Wright's request of 568,000 pounds or $704,000 in legal fees, a London High Court judge ruled in November that in order to challenge the cost, Cobra had to identify themselves. On Monday, London High Court Justice Richard Smith dismissed Cobra's appeal on the November ruling saying that although there are several reasons why parties would legally request anonymity, including threat of life, Cobra's reasons for not identifying themselves seems, quote, not only unworkable, but also risk undermining the very principles of natural justice because they sought to remain anonymous, not only against the public at large, but against the claimant and the court as well. Pseudonymous characters that are prominent community members, developers, or influencers are commonplace in crypto, which may explain Cobra's fight to stay anonymous. Meanwhile, Wright is pursuing multiple lawsuits around the world over the Bitcoin white paper and even liable over claims that he is Satoshi. Lawyers for Wright told Coindesk on Monday that they are awaiting an order on next steps, including whether Cobra is now required to pay up in full. Legal representatives for Cobra did not immediately respond to a Coindesk request for comment. Ah, I don't buy it. Uh, this this is like this has got to be a fundamental legal question for the ages. Do you relinquish all your rights as a human being because you refuse to identify who you are? what your face looks like, give people your fingerprints, your social security number, whatever whatever personally identifiable information that has been given to you, if you refuse to give any of that over, do you cease to be a legal entity in the world? I think not. Now, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a judge, and I understand that. However, I don't see how it is that we can competently entertain a notion 
that you lose all legal right to justice if you refuse to identify yourself. There's something very eerie about that. And I think, honestly, this is one, like like I said, this has got to be one of the most important legal questions that has ever fallen out of this entire world that we call Bitcoin. Never before, I'm not even sure if it's ever been argued before that, and honestly, it's not just because of Bitcoin. There's been a non-people since well before Bitcoin, but there's never been any high-profile legal cases that that really set into the spotlight what identity actually is as leveraged against your legal right for counsel, your natural right for justice. There's everything about this is wrong. I understand why the judge is doing it. How do you, how do you, I don't know. It's just, it, the whole thing is bizarre. How do you proceed legally representing somebody without any kind of identifiable information that identifies who they are? It's, this has got to be one of the most interesting questions that's ever been levied in jurisprudence ever. Sadly, it's because of Craig Wright, and I just don't like the dude, but it is what it is. All right. Bitcoin Magazine, Nick Hoffman writing the following. Over 50% of U.S. Bitcoin miners are going to back a new policy group. The Chamber of Digital Commerce, an advocacy organization for digital innovation in Bitcoin, has unveiled a new initiative known as the Digital Power Network. The Digital Powers Network primary mission is to advocate for Bitcoin mining and drive forward production energy policy, aiming to revolutionize energy markets by championing Bitcoin. The core belief behind this endeavor is that Bitcoin mining can help encourage investments in renewable energy and enhance grid stability. Boasting a strong membership roster, including industry giants such as Argo, BitDigital, BitFarms, CoinMint, CypherMining, DigitHost, Hive, Marathon Riot, Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol, and TerraWolf, the consortium represents over 50% of United States Bitcoin hash rate and aims to reshape the energy landscape while driving the future of energy policy in Washington, D.C. Quote, we are thrilled to announce our inaugural affiliate organization, the Digital Power Network, said founder and CEO of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, Perry Ann Boring. Quote, digital asset mining at its heart is both an energy and national security matter. And we firmly believe that Bitcoin will drive policies that unite all political stakeholders to advance this crucial industry in the United States, end quote. Through advocacy, partnership, and education, the Digital Power Network is attempting to make real policy change in Washington. Their objective is to forge a robust alliance encompassing policymakers, regulators, and media influencers, as well as economic stakeholders, a spokesperson for the Digital Power Network told Bitcoin Magazine. With a collective voice, they will work with policymakers to get policy that makes a real difference for Bitcoin miners. Jason Less, CEO of Riot, underlined the transformative potential of this initiative to push forward beneficial Bitcoin mining policy in the United States, stating, quote, At its core, Bitcoin mining converts stranded, low-cost energy into a valuable commodity, which is why our industry has tremendous potential. 
With this initiative, the Chamber of Digital Commerce aims to lead the conversation in digital energy advocacy and policy transformation. Fred Thiel, CEO of Marathon, also highlighted the importance of the Digital Power Network, stating, quote, Having a voice like the Digital Power Network in Washington is important for ensuring that the perspectives of digital energy stakeholders are considered. End quote. The Digital Power Network wants to position the United States as a leader in the digital energy revolution, aligning economic growth with environmental sustainability. The initiative has already made its mark on the policy front, notably by pioneering the introduction of the per, of the first pro-proof-of-work resolution in the United States House of Representatives. Will it do any good? I, I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing. If they were to get some people onboarded into this from Exxon and, you know, Phillips and some of the other major oil producers, then it's going to have real teeth. If they don't get that, we're probably never going to hear about them again unless they actually get stuff done. But I actually think that they're going to end up with some oil executives in this consortium. And if that happens, watch out. These guys are probably going to do some stuff. Aw, snap. That's the message that I just got from my Primal uh, because I wanted to read you this note from Quentin. And apparently Primal, for whatever reason, if I leave it on my browser too long, just kind of fails and I have to reload it. Anyway, this guy named Quentin, which I just started uh, following this morning, says the following. I think one of the most important challenges in Noster is going to be about the servers that host files. And we are not devoting enough attention to it. Right now, there are five of us, as far as I know. Noster.build, void.cat, Nosterimg.com, Nosterfiles.dev, Nostercheck.me. I believe that self-custody of files should be encouraged as soon as possible so that anyone can host their own files on their own server, like at home, for example. In this way, NIP96's proposal, together with more users installing nostercheck.me on their home servers, is the solution to the centralization of this important part of the protocol. I would like that this proposal can prosper to adapt my server to its specifications and finally get that many Noster users never again depend on anyone to share their own files in a sovereign way. If anyone is interested in collaborating, here is the code and he links to his GitHub repository for this code. In case, <coughs> excuse me, in case someone doesn't know it, the goal of nostercheck.me is to be used locally by many people and then step aside so that no one will ever again have to depend on a service provider for their own Noster address, file uploads, and all of the other services implemented on the server. If anyone has doubts why NosterCheck.me offers all of its services for free, I guess they finally know what it is, its ultimate goal. These are Some of these sentences are poorly written. I, I can't help it. It's probably a bad translation. Uh, to disappear to make way for thousands of sovereign Noster check or sorry, Noster check dot me. Okay. So why am I reading you this? Because for the past few weeks, I have been thinking seriously about the following issue. First of all, I've been thinking of all this clearly in the context of the Noster protocol. 
and relays. Okay, the protocol is the ability for, you know, things to communicate with each other. And those things are us users and relays. And specifically, when we start looking at the relays, the relays are kind of what stores this information. And up until now, we've had the following thing occur. I can do a couple of things. First of all, I can get a client, any client. Uh, Like right now, I'm using Primal, but I also use Coracle. There's been several other ones that I've used in the past, and there are several other ones that, that exist on, you know, for desktop today. There's also several ones that are on iOS. Well, not several, but at least a couple on iOS, and there looks like looks to be like Amethyst over on Android and maybe a couple of more over on the Android thing. My point is, is that no matter how you get to it, you're going to need a client. That client is going to have to interact with relays. If not, you know, a couple, well, if not a whole bunch, at least a handful of them. At the bare minimum, you're going to need one, but it probably to make it even remotely usable, you're going to have to interact with like three or four minimum, right? I use quite quite a bit more than that. And I probably shouldn't, but I just, I, I play around with relays. I have the choice to be able to spin up my own relay on my node BTC, which has my Bitcoin full node and my lightning node. And it's sitting over here on a Raspberry Pi 4. I don't know what to do with that. I just don't. I'm not a developer. And right now it's at the point where even if it's easy for like anybody who's got like any kind of developer sense about them is going, no, dude, you don't understand how easy it is. I need it to be even easier because I don't know what you know. What am I driving at? I need the client to come down with a relay. It's own personal relay that operates in the background, that just turns on. In fact, here's what I think we need to start driving towards. If anybody is older than 10 years old, you may remember something called Napster. Napster is what destroyed the music industry, and it's never recovered. People think it recovered, but it didn't. Napster was a P2P ability for you to get free music And it worked like a charm. It just worked. You set it up. It was like, you know, it was like, it looked like a browser. It was like, you know, a little standalone executable. It would install on your computer and boom, you were off to the races. You started, you could, it, it was very intuitive on how to go look for music in different genres, how to download that music, and then how to save that music to your own, you know, hard drive or whatever. It was very easy. What wasn't easy is the thing that you never saw. If you had a switch that you could turn on, that's the the only interaction you had with, with what I'm about to describe was a switch where it's basically in your settings, you could say, do ask you the question, do you want to act as a seed? And what that meant was if you keep the music on your hard drive and you act as a seed, then people that are looking for music can hit your hard drive along with all the other hard drives to be able to find the music that they want. Why can't we do that with Noster? Because every single person, not every person, but so many people on the Napster network turned that thing on. And it made the Napster network 
and the ability to go pull down uh, the ability to go pull down uh, music so insanely easy. If Nostra clients would come with a relay that was already, you know, done. Hold on, I got I got to fix something here. Let's see if I can do that right here. Huh? Do, 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 do. I got to top up a little bit. Do do. Give it four twenty. I was about to lose the stream on uh, Zap. Uh, so, uh, thankfully, my good friend Dubrovko told me that my balance was below 500. Oh, no, it wasn't Dubrovko. It was Zap.Stream just actually told me. Said, hey, please top up. Your balance is below 500 sats. It told me I'd get two hours and 20 minutes out of this. I'm only an hour and eight minutes into this whole thing. So, I don't know. They need to redo their redo their calculations. All right. <coughs> Where was I? Napster. Let's think about it this way. You download any kind of Nostra client and it's got a relay on board. It just installs into your computer and it does all the things that a relay needs to do. And you can choose whether or not to turn yours on. And if you were to turn yours on, all of your notes would that you produce would go to your relay first and then blast out to the other relays. And then if you, and then with other settings, you could partition a little bit of your hard drive and say, I will, I will donate 50 gigabytes of my hard drive to the Nostra protocol for file storage, note storage, and anything else that it needs to do. And if everybody had that just as an option in their settings for Nostra on any client, we wouldn't have half of the arguments about who needs to pay for relays and if paid relays are are charging too much and how much, you know, people bitching about how much it costs to run a free relay. We wouldn't have to do most of that because if everybody was acting as a daisy chain, like the old Napster network, this shit would probably already be solved. Does that mean I can do it? No. Does it also mean that the idea that I'm talking about will in fact solve the problem. I don't know. I'm not a developer. But if you have any development, you know, chops behind you, let me know, preferably through Boostagram, whether or not what I'm suggesting is just flat impossible or is a workable function. And if it is a workable function, then how do we hit up all the developers to just say, look, when you build the client, you know, and, and here's the thing, most of the clients that I know about, at least on desktop, they're all web-based. Is there a way to build a standalone client? I know there is. I used to have at least one back in the early days of Nostra. There was at least one that was not web-based. I had to actually, was an executable if I remember right. Can we do that again? Can we look at the structure of Napster? back in history and say, how do we pull that forward to now so that many of us can run small relays and allocate a portion of our hard drives to the Nostra network so that we can get this project not only stable, but has a hope in hell of surviving into the future. I think it already does have more than a hope in hell of surviving into the future, but think about how much power we'd be able to give over to that protocol by doing it this way. I decide that I want to use Domus on desktop or I want to use, 
or I want to use, um, yeah, Jagro, I'm glad you made it, but we're about done. Uh, we're, I'm just saying, we're, uh, Jagro, Jagro, you messed me up. Noster and Napster. I want a standalone Domus on PC, or I want a standalone uh, what, uh, Primal that's not web, that's not hooked. And maybe it's because of WebSockets that it has to be that way. I don't know. Surely there's a way. But if I can do that, then I know that it wouldn't be all that different from the old Napster system to be able to run a relay partition a little bit of your hard drive for memory storage for the Noster network and have a fully functional client that just works. And I think that that would help. Again, if I'm blowing some, if I'm just wrong, if talking out of the side of my head, please, for the love of God, let me know because I don't like being embarrassed that way. Uh, that's going to do it for the morning roundup. All right, is Dad says jokes time. How do you get a country girl's attention? A tractor. That's right. Podcasting 2.0 is the way to go. If you want to support the show, give me boostergrams, stream me sats, and I'll tell you more about news and the Bitcoin and Noster and any of the other stuff that, that we can do. So that you don't have to read the articles. You can just listen to me. I'll read the articles for you while you're driving to work, taking the train, flying in a plane, washing dishes, whatever, dude. There's no reason for you to sit there and have to read all this stuff. I'll do it for you. Also, five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts make a difference. They do make a difference. If I can get you guys today to go give me at least one, that would not only help grow the show, It would make me very, very happy, and I would be much appreciative. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.